Are you a beach person or a mountain person? Beach over there. Yeah, beach. I'm a mountain person. I'm a mountain person. I absolutely have to have my mountain fix every year. Every year I gotta have my mountain fix. There's just something about the majesty and the ruggedness of the mountains that just astound me, that leave me in awe. I like to look at mountains where between the trees you can see sort of the rock layers and you just think of history, of, of the history, and you wonder, what has this mountain seen? What has this mountain heard? What is it? witnessed and I just it to me seeing mountains is like a reset button and I'm able to relax I'm able to be calm growing up my family spent almost every Thanksgiving in the Great Smoky Mountains in Tennessee we would spend time in Gatlinburg and Pigeon Forge but my favorite was just to look out at the mountains and when the clouds would descend and they would actually get their name the Smokies that was to me was just always so beautiful a few years ago, Steve and I made vacation plans in Colorado with my parents. And we rode the train up Pikes Peak in the Rocky Mountains. And what was so interesting to me is that at some point, the trees stop. And all of a sudden, you've got nothing but rugged little shrubbery things. And even the, the animals there above the tree line are different than the animals that are below the tree line. I thought that was just fascinating. This past September, Steve and I went to Oregon for a few days and we stayed in a little town called La Grande and it's in the desert valley of eastern Oregon, surrounded on all sides by the Blue Mountains. And every time I opened a door to step outside, my breath was taken away. Every time I could turn and look in any direction and I was just in awe of the beauty of the mountains. There's something about the mountains that just causes me to reflect, causes me to just breathe out, and I need every year to have my breath taken away, to have that reset. In our scripture this morning, Isaiah is talking about the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord's house, and he brings up the word Zion. Well, we want to understand what mountain is he talking about, what is the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of the Lord's house. We also need to understand that word Zion. And the short answer is, is the word Zion changes meaning depending on how old the scripture passage is. So we kind of have to go back in time and it changes in meaning as the scriptures get younger and younger. Zion is the oldest part of the city of Jerusalem. And it actually started out as a separate city than Jerusalem. And King David is the one who annexed in Zion into Jerusalem. And then it was King Solomon that built the temple on the Temple Mount in Zion. That's where that is, where the Temple Mount sits, where the mountain was. That was the mountain of the Lord. That was the mountain of the Lord's house, and it was in the center of what was Zion, the oldest part of Jerusalem. So Zion can refer to the oldest part of Jerusalem. It can refer to where Solomon's temple was. But then when you start moving into the Psalms and to some of the prophets, Zion starts meaning things like all of Jerusalem. When you see the word Zion, it's actually a synonym for Jerusalem. And then in the newest scriptures that we have in the Old Testament, Zion refers to the whole people of Israel. It's no longer a place. It's a collection of people. Over time, the idea of Jerusalem became idealized, and it was captured in the word Zion. And when we read in Isaiah... Isaiah refers to Zion as the idealized version of Jerusalem in which Jerusalem will never fall, 
because God promised that there would always be a descendant of David upon the throne. So whenever we read about Zion or the Mount of the Lord or the Mount of the Lord's house in Isaiah, we're hearing him talk about God enthroned on that mountain, God enthroned in the temple, and nothing's going to take that away. We're talking about the triumph of the Lord over not just Israel and the world, but all of the universe. There's this richness, this, this triumph idea surrounding the throne when we talk about Zion in, in Isaiah. But there's a second piece to that. It's not just this God of awesome power. It's a God that cares so much that blessings flow from Zion. So what we have is this picture of a triumph God and a God of benevolence. Who cares? In this passage from Isaiah, he says that all the nations will stream to the mountain of the Lord. All the nations are going to come to Zion. All the nations of the Lord are going to come to the mountain of the Lord's house. And they are coming because the word of the Lord comes from that place. And the people are going to listen and seek out God's ways and then walk in God's way. So it's this idea of receiving instruction and then being obedient to the instruction. So it's instruction and obedience, and that is the call and the attraction of Zion, as Isaiah has depicted it. We seek out instructions. We're surrounded by instructions in our lives. Every time you've ever ordered a piece of furniture that required assembly, you'd get this instruction packet with a bunch of different languages in it. And you just hoped that all the screws and the nails and the Allen wrenches and the little bumper things and the felt things that go on the bottom of the feet, you just hope they're all in that package. We also have instructions on how to reset the clocks in our cars, but I, all, I, I think we all know people who never do, and their clock for six months out of the year is just off. Diana just punched Linda. <laughs> My bicycle, the, the computer on my bicycle is always in daylight savings. I never change it back to regular. I'm also one of these people, I cannot cook by winging it. I have to have a recipe. I cannot guess what spices need to go with what ingredient. I got to have it written out for me. That's me. We can have all of the recipes, all of the directions, all the instructions that we, what, that we want, but what good is it if we don't follow them? We can have the Bible in our possession, but what good is it if we never read it? And what good is it if we read the Bible and then don't do anything that the Bible tells us to do? We need to be in conversation with each other. We need to get advice from each other in order to seek out the Lord's ways, to receive that instruction. But then we can't take that instruction and then just say, great, that's all I wanted. When I was in the sixth grade, Mrs. Morton gave our math class an assignment, and there were 12 items listed on the assignment. Some were questions and some were actions that you needed to do. And she said, read all 25 before you start. And at the top of the page, it said, read all of these items before you do anything. And then she said, but you're under a time constraint. I made it to about item five or six before I couldn't stand it anymore, and I had to start answering the questions and doing the items. And one was that you needed to write your name in the upper right-hand corner of the page. And then you needed to write the capital city of Alabama. And sure enough, time came around and I didn't make it all the way through the assignment. 
but Jennifer did. Turns out item number 24 said ignore everything else that was on the page. And item 25 was to write your name on the first line of your sheet of paper. Jennifer got it right, I didn't. I read the instructions, but I didn't do them. It's not enough just to seek the Lord's ways and to receive those instructions. There's a second piece to it, and that's walking in the Lord's ways. It's instruction and obedience. What happens when we receive the Lord's ways and then do the Lord's ways? What happens when we receive those instructions and then do those instructions? The passage that Debbie read from Isaiah just puts it so beautifully. What happens when we do and walk in the Lord's ways? The people shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's peace. It's peace. In Isaiah's view, if we seek out the Lord's ways and then walk in the Lord's ways, what we will experience is peace. But this isn't peace for peace's sake. This isn't peace just because we're not at war. They're taking their swords and making plowshares. They're taking their spears and making pruning hooks. Plowshares and pruning hooks are farming implements. They're used in agriculture. They're for cultivation, for growth, for nourishment. They're taking their weapons of war and turning them into implements for cultivation, growth, and nourishment. They're taking that which is a symbol of hate and division and doing something that's going to feed somebody. That, to me, sounds like loving and serving your neighbor in the name of the Lord. What are our weapons of war? What would peace that looks like that, a piece of cultivation, growth, and nourishment, what would that look like in our time? Several weeks ago, there was a shooting in Pittsburgh at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Several people were killed that day. And there was various reactions around the nation, obviously a lot of reaction of outrage, but there was one reaction that really caught my attention. There was a Muslim community that raised over $200,000 for the people of the Tree of Life Synagogue, $200,000. And they held a press conference. And the representative from the Muslim community said, we will do whatever you need, whatever you need from us. If you need us to come and stand on the sidewalk outside your synagogue so that you will feel safe, so that you will feel secure, so that you will have peace of mind, we will come do that. Now, if there was a Christian organization that raised over $200,000 for the Tree of Life Synagogue, I hadn't heard about it. And if there was a Christian representative who came out and said, I'll go stand outside your synagogue for you so you feel safe, I haven't heard about it. The question is, would you stand outside a mosque or a synagogue so someone else could feel secure and safe and have peace of mind? 
as they worship? What are our weapons of war? Believe it or not, the Bible is a weapon of war. When we pervert the gospel message, when we don't talk about the love and grace and salvation that's the Bible, and instead we take it and we just bang people over the heads with it and say, you are going to believe this, and by the way, you're going to believe it the same way I do. Or if we take one line of scripture and we just forget that, well, there could be contradictions in here, let's have a conversation about it. Instead, we're like, I'm right, you're wrong. That's when the Bible becomes a weapon of war. Facebook is a weapon of war. There is so much hatred and negativity and division out there that just creates more harm than also internally within ourselves, our grudges and our resentments. Those things that we hold on to, those become weapons of war. What if we use the Bible the way God actually asked us to? As a book of instruction, correction, a book of mercy, love, a book of salvation. What if the only words we put online were words of love, forgiveness, mercy, and peace? What if we let go of some of those grudges and resentments and replaced them with love and grace and mercy and forgiveness that leads to peace? What if we took our weapons of war and made them into implements of cultivation and growth? What if we took our weapons of war and made them implements of nourishment? I'll say it again, love is stronger than hate. It absolutely has to be. It has to be. We cannot let hate win around us. We can't. Isaiah is calling out to the wayward Israelites, come back into relationship with God. How is Jesus calling us? back into relationship with the Lord. I believe that God is putting up a mirror to all of our faces. I think the pain and division and hatred and bigotry and sexism, classism, racism, worshipisms that we've got going on in our country right now aren't new, they're just being uncovered. And I think God is putting up a mirror to our faces and saying, see, this is what you got. This is the sin in our nation. We are not living in peace with each other. We are not living in peace with our neighbor. We are not living in peace in the Lord's name. We're not. There are no plowshares or pruning hooks around us. We're surrounded by swords and spears. And Isaiah is telling us, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Isaiah paints this picture of hope that all the nations are going to stream to the Lord because we're going to seek the Lord's ways and then walk in the Lord's ways. Well, that is just not going to happen if we have believers who will believe and not do. Who will believe it, but I can spew anything I want on Facebook on Monday. Nobody's going to know. That's not it. Isaiah was calling the wayward Israelites back to God, saying, come on, people, seek, seek that instruction and then live in obedience. And Jesus is saying the same thing to us today. May we take our weapons of war and create implements of love, mercy, grace, 
forgiveness implements of the gospel. May we seek out the Lord. May we walk in the Lord's ways. And may we be instruments of God's love in this hate-filled, divisive, broken, struggling world. In Jesus' name, amen.